Our next lesson, two brief parables from Jesus, which was, of course, his preferred way of preaching and teaching. This is in the 13th chapter of Matthew. I'll read verses 44 through 45. Let us listen for the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great price, of value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And we welcome those who are worshiping with us today by way of live streaming. Uh, glad to have you with us and look forward when and if possible you can join with us. If you didn't know when you entered the sanctuary, you certainly know by now that this is Pentecost Sunday, figuratively and literally a red-letter day in the life of the church in the liturgical year. We bring out our red paraments, we put on our red stoles, we have the red, orange, and yellow flags that uh, part of, were part of our procession. We even encourage our members to wear red on this, what we call the birthday of the Christian church. That day when the Holy Spirit descended upon disciples gathered in an upper room waiting for what Jesus had promised. And the Spirit descended in remarkable, indescribable ways. An experience that was always inspiring and glorious and defied human speech, really, to characterize what was going on. But they spoke of tongues of fire and a rushing wind and a cacophony of sounds and languages, all praising God and testifying to his marvelous works. Know, of course, that Pentecost is an exact reversal of what took place in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, where the people were trying to make a name for themselves, living in pride, building this great tower. God comes down and confuses the languages so they can no longer speak to one another or understand their neighbor. But then we get to Pentecost. The reverse happens. The Spirit comes. And everyone hears in their own language of the marvelous works of God, not of man, but of God. And they leave that upper room, empowered and energized by the Holy Spirit, and went out into the world and came to be described as those people who were turning the world upside down. And so it's right and appropriate that we should celebrate the birth of the church on Pentecost Sunday, if not every Sunday, and think and reflect on what the church really means. What does it mean for the life of the world, the life of the nation? What does it mean for your life, your family, your marriage? How do we assess the value of the church? It would be hard to overstate the influence the Christian church has had on all humanity across the globe, but especially in the Western world. Nearly every liberating movement that's ever come along has had Christians, disciples of Christ, and members of his church involved some way in what was going on. Whether you're talking about the liberation from tyranny or the liberation from racial prejudice or the 
liberation from this vice or that vice, the church has been involved. Doesn't mean the church has been perfect. The church has made mistakes in the past. But on the whole, it is a heritage and a history worth preserving and celebrating and handing down to subsequent generations. And that's my worry, frankly. That's my concern as a pastor. Will it be there in the future? They say there are two things you should never worry about. You shouldn't worry about something you can do nothing about. You shouldn't worry about something that you can do something about. So worry is never appropriate, I guess. But this is something we can do something about. You can. And I can. It is within our power to help change the course of the history of the church. So it's appropriate that on this Sunday we examine the character of our own discipleship, the nature of our own witness and work as the people of God and disciples of Jesus Christ in this community and beyond. But maybe you just assume because the church has always been here, it's going to always be here. That is not the case. It's a false assumption. But a lot of people live as if that's the reality. I don't know if you keep up with data about the church, its diminishing influence, its diminishing numbers. There was a study done three years ago by the Pew Research Organization, and this is some of the data that captured my attention and warrants our discussion, I think. Despite overall population growth in the United States, the total number of mainline Protestant adults has decreased by roughly 5 million between 2007 and 2014. Between 80 and 90% of all congregations in America are either stagnant or in decline. 80 to 90%. Over 20,000 pastors left the ministry in 2012. A survey of over 1,000 pastors indicated that 71% described themselves as burned out or even beyond fatigue, suffering from depression. 48% of them said they would leave the ministry if they could find another job. And perhaps most disturbing to me among these statistics is one that says that 50% of all newly ordained Protestant pastors will leave the ministry within five years. Think about that. You come out of seminary, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, looking to take on an assignment, passionate about your faith and the gospel and the possibilities for the gospel transforming the world. And all of a sudden, you land in a church that's lethargic, catatonic, lackadaisical, little interest in the gospel or in what you're trying to do to revive the church. Nothing so disappoints pastors, and particularly young pastors, as running into this kind of attitude. And it is reflected in so many churches. And don't think it's not reflected here, too. It is. We show the same kind of statistics. In fact, if you get from Matt Logan the latest statistics by the Gallup poll, we have declined more than is average among other churches. And people become discouraged. They work on projects. They spend a lot of time preparing for some event or for some program, some work. 
and then no one shows up. Not enough to justify the expense of the work or the time. We've canceled two retreats since I've been here, since the end of November. We put together a wonderful, not we, I wasn't involved, but some of our younger staff put together this God Talks program dealing with the crisis and the environment and the Christian response to that. And just a handful of people came. Most who came were outside the church. Our own members weren't even here. So it's enough to wedge disenchantment into one's very sense of call. And I remember when I was a younger pastor, I've never told this story before, but I'll tell it now because the person is deceased that it's about. But when I was a pastor in my second church, I'd been there for about eight years and I was enjoying it. Things were going well, I thought, in the church. It was growing. A church uh, came to visit the church pulpit committee and asked me, uh, it did an interview and asked me if I would consider leaving and taking another call. And I said, no, I'm, I'm here and I don't think I finished my work here. About six months later, a young elder in the church came to me and asked if I would preach on a topic that was of major concern to him and his life and his family. And it had been something he'd struggled with for a long time. I said, yes, I'll do it. In fact, I'll do it this next Sunday because I haven't planned what I'm going to preach. So I worked hard and diligently on that uh, sermon. The next Sunday morning, I looked for him, and he wasn't in the congregation. And so I called him on Monday thinking he must have gotten sick or something happened. Something was going on in his family. I said, Larry, I didn't see you in church Sunday. He said, no, as it turned out, the only tea time I could get was 1130. I called the other church on Monday. I said, if you're still looking, I'm, I'm willing to talk. But that kind of thing happens so much in the life and work of the church. You don't have to take my word for it. Ask any pastor who's working in the church today. We say we want this to be a church of growing disciples who are growing disciples. And it requires the mission of the church, both of those. We need to grow ourselves as disciples. If you're not growing, friend, you're dying. We can't stay in neutral in the life of the church. Either we're growing or we're going in reverse. When I made that decision, reflecting on it later, I think maybe it was a precipitous decision. I think it was immature in some ways. I was just nursing my own hurt feelings. But I, I know that's that feeling of disenchantment. And so I identify, especially with younger pastors going through that. What do we want this church to be? I can get behind that, that slogan, if we want to call it a slogan, our mission to be a place of growing disciples who are themselves growing disciples because that's the only way you can grow disciples is through other disciples reaching out to them. We say that we want our church to attract young families and young adults. That's the the dream of every church in this country today, isn't it? And if we think we're going to solve that issue by just bringing in some young hotshot preacher, him or her, and think they're going to be a pied piper to bring the young adults in, we're kidding ourselves because that's not what young adults are looking for. They're looking to be a part of an organization that demands something from them 
Not just an easy place to come and sit and listen or be entertained or whatever. They want to be a part of an organization that's going to make a transformation in the life of the world. That's what appeals to them. And that's what we need. And so the way we do that is by every age group in this congregation. Reviving your own commitment, your own discipleship, and reaching out. Not just to young people, to anyone who needs the gospel. Young or old, rich or poor, sick or healthy. That's your charge and my charge as disciples. A Lutheran pastor told me last year that of the 83 million millennials in America, only 15% are in any way related to a synagogue or church. So the fields are white under harvest. They're just not coming for one reason or another. So I ask you in light of all that, what does the church really mean to you? I mean, honestly, what kind of value do you attach to this congregation and to the church of Jesus Christ beyond these walls. In the letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the risen Christ is addressing his people and he has some harsh words, some words of encouragement, yes, for some of the churches, but for the most part, these words are admonishing the churches to be revived, to take seriously their work and their witness. Several of them Give me the heebie-jeebies, the one to Ephesus. I have this against you, the risen Lord says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. I bet a lot of us here today were much more active, much more passionate about our faith when we were younger than we are right now. Does that apply to us? Or the church at Sardis? I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Calling for revival. Or maybe most disconcerting of all, the letter to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. What does this church and the church mean to you? And how do you know? How do you go about assessing the value of the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ? There's an objective way of doing that. If you believe the scriptures are the word of God, that they are authoritative and they pl- apply to our life, then you can really just see how, does this, how do the scriptures speak of the kingdom of God. I know someone's going to say, oh, the church is not identical with the kingdom of God. Maybe not. No, it's not. I agree. But it should be. And one of the great ends of the church in our constitution is to be an exhibition of the kingdom of God to the world. In other words, people outside of the faith, outside of the church, ought to look at those of us who are part of it and let this be a witness to them for what the kingdom of God, the rule of God, and the reign of God in the lives of his people looks like when it's put into force. So just look what the scriptures say about the church. It's called the bride of Christ. Have you ever had someone insult your spouse? How do you react to that? How do you think the Lord feels when his bride is attacked 
and insulted and mocked by so many people today. Jesus prays for the church. His final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, he's praying for not only those who believed in him, but those who would come to believe through the word of the apostles, that's you and me. And he prays that they will be unified, that they will be one, that they will have protection, that they will be effective in their mission. That ought to tell us something about the value of the church, just what the scripture says about it, what Jesus believed about it himself. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, citizens of the kingdom, children of light, co-workers with Christ, the very flock of God, the fold of God, the assembly of the saints, God's heritage, the temple of the living God. These are lofty, lofty descriptions of an organization if it has no value. Clearly, from an objective point of view, if you take seriously the word, living and written, the church matters. It matters greatly. Our two parables this morning, parables about the kingdom of God, Jesus' favorite subject perhaps, Let us look at them. In the first, it's the parable of the hidden treasure. We see that the assessment of the kingdom's worth is like a man who discovers a buried treasure in a field, and he's so overjoyed and overwhelmed by his discovery that he goes and buys that field so that he can reclaim the treasure hidden there. In the second parable the pearl of great price, there is a pearl collector, a pearl merchant. And suddenly one day he comes upon the most exquisite, the most beautiful pearl that he has ever seen, one of supreme worth. And what does he do? He goes and sells everything else he has so that he can buy that one thing that is his life's desire and the goal of all his searching. Jesus, ever the master raconteur and storyteller, knew how to capture the imagination of people. Who hasn't dreamed or even in some way experienced the finding of some lost or valuable treasure? Just a couple of years ago, if you've ever seen the movie Glory about the uh, uh, African-American troop troop in in the Civil War, they were under the command of Robert Gould Shaw, and they were the first to attack Battery Wagner on the harbor in Charleston. Many of them died, but they fought brilliantly and left a great heritage for American military ever since then. But Captain Shaw's been dead for generations, but they found his sword hidden in the attic of one of his descendants. And it was quite a treasure when they found that. Two years ago, a man named Jimmy Smith in New York was going through some old laundry and found a lottery ticket in the pocket of an old shirt took it in and it was worth 24 million dollars he had two days remaining he found a treasure it seems to me that in both of these parables of Jesus he's making the same point he's saying that the highest good the summum bonum of life our ultimate joy our greatest discovery and true allegiance is nothing less than the kingdom of God a relationship with Christ and his people. 
What is the kingdom? The kingdom is any place where God reigns and rules. Is that true in your life? Does God really reign and rule there? Or is he just one of your many concerns and considerations in life? Are you a part of that church that's chosen and precious in the sight of God? Some people, like the man in the field, almost stumble upon this treasure. They weren't really looking for it, but they found it nonetheless. Or rather, it's not so much they found God, but God found them. That happens. Others, like this pearl merchant, spend their whole whole life searching for that one thing in life that they haven't found. And when they find it, they will readily give up everything else to claim it. Romans 10, 20 says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Some people come to faith and enter the kingdom that way. Many of us, I suspect, did. We were born into a Christian home. We had the witness of our family, our friends, our community. We didn't know what it was like not to go to church, to consider our part, ourselves disciples of Christ and members of his church. Oh, we may have struggled at times with faith or, faith or doubt or other issues in the faith, but we never lost sight of the value of the church and what it's meant to our people and to us and to the world. It's priceless. Then there are others like uh, the man who's always searching for what he hasn't yet found. Doesn't know what it is. And sometimes there is an event, a turnaround, a Damascus Road kind of experience that happened to Paul. He was out persecuting the church. He wasn't trying to meet Jesus. But Jesus met him on the road. And life and history changed. Sometimes that happens. We, we read a book. We see a movie. We have a conversation late, late at night with some friend. And all of a sudden, the scales come off. And we see what we never saw before. We hear what we never heard. It's the Spirit of God calling us to our God. And once that's discovered, you can give up everything else to retain that. That's what Paul says when he's writing and he says all those things that people prize in him, his heritage, his intellect, his education, his zeal for the faith, the fact that he was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin for heaven's sake. But then he says all of that I count as loss, as garbage. That's really what he's saying. For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. So what does the kingdom mean for you? Not only is there, are there objective ways to try to determine that, to try to figure out, well, what does this book that we say is authoritative say about it? What does our Lord say about it? But there's a subjective test we can use as well to determine its value. And that's just by being honest with ourselves and asking, how genuine is my commitment? How passionate is my faith? How joyful is my service? How faithful is my devotion to Jesus Christ? Not the whole church, just me. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm doing better than the person beside me on the pew. That's not the measure, is it? We measure ourselves by Jesus Christ. 
I think this is an appropriate, a propitious time for this congregation to examine its life, its vitality, to see how committed are we and how does anyone know, even ourselves, if we're committed. Does Jesus Christ occupy a preeminent place in our lives or is Jesus just one of many concerns that we have? I've told you this in the past. I'll tell it to you again. The one thing Jesus Christ cannot be is moderately important. He is either all important or he's unimportant. And you have to decide for yourself which he is. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. But he can't be but one of those. I think it's time that we examine seriously whether we as individuals, whether we as families, whether we as a community of faith are just being rather nonchalant and cavalier about our faith and about our church. One thing I'd mention in closing, there is another way, I hope it doesn't come to this, but there is another way of assessing what the value of the church really is, and that is to consider what would it be like, who would miss it if it weren't here. That's not a novel idea. I told you last week about this Matthew 25 initiative from the denomination challenging churches to rebuild congregational vitality to embrace work eliminating racism and addressing systemic poverty. Three different ways of becoming a part of a a Matthew 25 congregation. I think we can do all three of those. In fact, we're working on two of them right now. We haven't started working on congregational vitality, but it's coming. It'll be this fall. We're going to look at how can we revive this body. Maybe... I don't know if Kevin will talk about the valley of dry bones and the spirit comes on those dry bones, but sometimes the body needs to be revived. May need a heart transplant. May need to unclog some arteries. May need to have a shock to the system to get us back in rhythm. But I'm convinced of this, and I'll say more about this on the Sunday of July, but I am convinced personally that if the church fails... This country is going to fail because our freedoms are derived from our faith. I don't know that we're fully aware of that or conscious of it, but it's true. And where the church has failed in other places, so too has liberty. The head football coach at the University of North Carolina a couple of years ago said that if football fails, America will fail. Well, I love football as much as anyone else, but I beg to differ with Coach Fedora. Maybe they've sent him back to Mississippi now. I don't know. He's not there. But I, Anyway, maybe you'll send me back. But I disagree. But I do believe that if the church fails, America will fail for sure. And Diane Moffitt in the Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterians Today magazine that I quoted from last week The article about this Matthew 25 initiative says this, you might think that the vitality of a congregation or worshiping community is based on the number of members or the scope of its programs or the size of its financial gifts or other statistics. Not so. 
at least not entirely. Rather, a community's vitality is primarily its spiritual strength and its capacity for purposeful mission. So you judge the vitality of a congregation by, by how many people will miss it if it's no longer there. I charge you to, with me to examine the character of our discipleship and the strength of our commitment. We've got to do this before you call a new pastor to come in here. Because that will challenge and inspire him or her to the work that God is calling all of you to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.